Our good word today continues from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, where Paul is talking about Satan attacking our faith. Now, I trust that you faithful listeners who have been following along in these studies are not uh, bored with these little detours that we take. It's a conviction of mine as a pastor and as a Bible teacher that we don't give people enough of the practical part of the Word of God. And my concern is that 1 Thessalonians be a real help to your personal life and to your church. I trust that the Word of God will go to work in your life and through your life and enable you to be a greater blessing in your home and in your church and in your neighborhood and wherever you may work. We are now in our 38th study in 1 Thessalonians. It seems impossible, but there we are. And I want to continue now discussing the devices of the devil as he tries to hinder our faith. Now, don't forget where we are. 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. We've discovered through searching the word of God that there are at least four devices the devil uses to try to hinder the faith of the Christian. We live by faith. If once the devil can undermine our faith, he has ruined our Christian lives. His first device is lies. Satan comes with lies. He attacks the mind with lies. We found the illustration of this in Genesis chapter 3, where Satan came to Eve and said, Yea, hath God said. Now when the devil attacks your mind with lies, Your weapon is the inspired word of God. It is written. I recommend to you, when some lie gets into your mind, don't water it, don't nurture it, don't cultivate it. Just turn to the word of God. This is why it's so important, Christian friend, that you memorize the Bible. Memorize the word of God. Let it get into your heart. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. You adults in our Sunday schools and churches, you think that Bible memory work is good for primaries and beginners and juniors, but not adults. Quite frankly, we adults need more of the Word of God than these children do because we face more than they do. The inspired Word of God. Then in Job chapters 1 and 2, we discovered Satan with another tactic. He uses circumstances, suffering, to attack the body. And our only weapon here is the imparted grace of God. My grace is sufficient for thee, says God to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I trust you've learned how to experience the grace of God. Do you live by grace? You see, to live by law means that I have to do something to please God. But to live by grace means that God works in me and through me to please him. Do you depend upon the grace of God? In the morning, the first thing when you wake up, turn yourself over to God and his grace. Now, you don't know what circumstances are going to come. Even today, you don't know. I don't know. I don't know what the future holds, says the songwriter, but I know who holds the future. And when our lives are in his hands, even though Satan may attack the body, we have the imparted grace of God to sustain us. Now, the third example we're going to look at of Satan's devices is in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. 1 Chronicles chapter 21. It's one of the forgotten stories in the life of David. Now, David was the king, and David in his pride asked to have the people 
numbered. He took a census. Now, if you'll read 2 Samuel chapter 24, which is the parallel chapter, and we can't take time in these studies to go into all the details, but if you'll read 1 Chronicles 21 and 2 Samuel 24, you'll discover Satan provoked David to number the people. Is there anything wrong with taking a census? No. In fact, every, every, every once in a while, the Jews were supposed to take a census of all the men, 21 years of age and over, and require of them the uh, temple tax for the sanctuary. And there's nothing wrong with this at all. But you see, David's motive was wrong. David had just won a great many battles. David was feeling his oats, as people used to say. And consequently, David was proud. So here is Satan's third target. When he attacked Eve, his target was her mind. His weapon was lies. When he attacked Job, his target was the body. His weapon, circumstances. When he attacked David, his target was the will. And his weapon, pride. Now, when you read this passage, Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. And so David called in his chief officer, Joab, and he said, You number them. And Joab said, No, I won't do it. The Lord make his people a hundred times so many more as they be. But my Lord the king, are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then doth my Lord require this thing? Why will he be a cause of trespass to Israel? David prevailed against Joab. He said, look, I'm the king. I want you to take a census. And he took as long as he could to do it. God gave to David a long time, nearly 10 months, to repent of this thing, and he didn't do it. Pride. Now, pride is a sin of the will. I've watched this in children. You say to your son, now, pick up your clothes off the floor. I will not. That's pride. You see, David did not commit this sin because he was deceived. His mind was clear. He knew he was doing wrong. It wasn't because circumstances were uncomfortable. He was at a time of victory and tremendous prosperity. Why did David do it? Pride. It was a sin of the will. You know, you may have this problem. Occasionally, I have this problem. I just go ahead and want to do something that I know is wrong. Paul talks about this over in Romans chapter 7. He said that the good that I would do, I do not, and the evil that I don't want to do, I do. He was having a tremendous problem with sin in his life. There dwelleth in me no good thing. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. In other words, we have a struggle in our lives, not with our minds being deceived or our bodies being attacked, we have a problem with our will. We sometimes get stubborn. We sometimes become proud. Now, Satan's great sin was pride. I will, I will, I will, Isaiah chapter 14. Uh, he was proud, and he wanted to be somebody great, and God had to cast him down. Now, David was attacked by Satan in the will. His mind was clear, but his will was stubborn, and this was sin. Now, his purpose... Satan's purpose was to make him independent of God's will. Can you remember these purposes so far? Satan attacked Eve in her mind to make her ignorant of God's will. Satan attacked Job in his body to make him impatient with God's will. But he attacked David in his will to make him independent of God's will. If Satan can get a man to be independent, he's ruined him. Now, whenever you find an independent person operating outside the will of God, you'll find somebody who's bound to fail. 
Abraham became independent of God's will and went down into Egypt, and he suffered for it. Jonah became independent of God's will and ran away from Nineveh, and he suffered for it. David became independent of God's will, and he numbered the people. And you know, it's a strange thing here. We talk about David's great sin with Bathsheba. Well, I read here that uh, some 70,000 people died because of David's sin. Now, when David sinned against Bathsheba, uh, her husband died and the baby died, and eventually Absalom died and Amnon died, four people. Because of David's sin of the flesh, adultery, four people died. Because of David's sin of the spirit, pride, in numbering the people, 70,000 people died. This explains to me why the Lord Jesus was very severe on proud people. He was very tender toward the adulteress in John chapter 8. He was so very tender toward that woman who washed his feet with her tears in the Gospel of Luke. But when he faced the Pharisees with their pride and their self-righteousness, He was hard on them, and he even called them a generation of vipers, children of the devil, because he's proud. Now, Satan wants to get you to be independent of God's will. He wants you to say, I know I'm doing wrong, but I'm going to do it anyway. A stubborn sin of the will. Now, dear people, God can overlook, in some respects, the ignorance of the mind. And God can overlook, in some respects, the impatience of the emotions But when it comes to the stubbornness of the will, this is one thing that God cannot overlook. God punishes this. Saul became stubborn, and God had to take him out of the way. Samson became stubborn and defiant in his life, and God had to take him out of the way. And God will take us out of the way unless we submit to him. Now, what is our weapon? What weapon do we use to fight the devil when he tries to control the will and get us to be independent of God's will. Our weapon is the indwelling Spirit of God. Can you remember the three weapons we've discussed? The inspired Word of God, the imparted grace of God, and now the indwelling Spirit of God. You see, only the Spirit of God dwelling within us can control our will. Let me read to you from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Both to will and to do. Now, there are times when we do what God wants us to do, but not willingly. I think I may have told you about the little girl who was standing in the front seat of the car. And Daddy was driving down the highway, and he said, Now, sit down. And she said, No. He said, Sit down and put on your seatbelt. And she said, No. And he stopped the car and sat her down and spanked her and put the seatbelt on her and started off again. And as they drove down the highway, she said very quietly, I'm still standing up inside. I think we get like that. God says, Don't do that. Don't do that. And so we say, Okay, I won't do it but I'm going to do it down inside. Now, we can serve the the, the Lord unwillingly, but this will never bring a blessing. An unwilling servant is never a happy servant. 
the Holy Spirit of God wants to work in us both to will and to do, not just his will, but of his good pleasure. Now, anybody can do the will of God, but not everybody can please God. Sometimes my children do my will, but not in a way that pleases me. They just do it, carry out the garbage, wash the windows, uh, clean up the basement, but they don't do it willingly. They do it defiantly. God's not happy with this any more than I'm happy with it with my children. The indwelling Spirit of God wants to work in us to make us willing to do God's good pleasure. Now, how does the Holy Spirit of God work in us? Through his word. The Spirit of God takes the word of God and prayer. And as we spend time reading the word and praying and meditating and fellowshipping with the Lord, the Holy Spirit works in our lives. It's interesting now, we have discussed three areas of the Christian's life, the body, the mind, and the will. He attacked Eve's mind with lies. He attacked Job's body with suffering. He attacked David's will with pride. Body, mind, and will. Would you compare this, please, to Romans 12, 1 and 2? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. There's all three, the body, the mind, and the will. Romans 12, 1 and 2, body, mind, and will surrendered to the Lord. You know, if you'll surrender these to the Lord every day, Satan will not be able to get through to have victory. Our good word today continues in our study of the methods that Satan uses to attack the saint, the devices of the devil, the strategy of Satan. Now, we've been focusing our attention on the theme in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 5. For this cause, when I could no longer forbear, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter have tempted you and our labor be in vain. Now, the Christian has three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. My good friend, Dr. David Allen, puts it this way. We have an internal enemy, the flesh, and we have an infernal enemy, the devil, and an external enemy, the world. And Satan would use every device he could to trip us up and to ruin our faith. Once Satan has eroded our faith, he has ruined the Christian life. When we can no longer trust the word of God, then we can no longer live to glorify God. After all, living by faith means trusting God's promises and obeying God's commandments in spite of feelings and circumstances. Now, we've discovered that in four instances in the Old Testament, God exposes the devil. He holds him out for us to see, that we might understand the strategy that he uses, that Satan uses, to trip up our faith. We discovered in Genesis chapter 3 that he attacked Eve's mind. You'll recall in 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul warned that our minds should not be corrupted as was Eve's mind. So in Genesis chapter 3, Satan attacked Eve's mind. His weapon lies. He told her a series of lies. Yea, hath God said, ye shall not surely die. Ye shall be as God. His purpose was to make her ignorant of God's will. 
And, of course, our only defense when Satan comes attacking the mind with lies is the truth of God's word. Dear Christian friend, I appeal to you, I beseech you, I implore you to study the word of God. Unless you know the truth of the word, you will be caught by every lie that Satan can devise. And he always sugarcoats his lies. He always masquerades them. They look like some very wonderful thing, but they always turn out to produce death. So that was the first device. He uses lies to attack the mind, as he did in the case of Eve. In the case of Job, he used suffering to attack the body. And, of course, his aim was to get Job to be impatient with God's will. The only time Job is mentioned in the entire New Testament, as far as I know, is in James 5.11. You know of the patience of Job. And, of course, when the devil attacks the body with suffering, our only defense is the grace of God. The inspired word of God conquers him when he attacks the mind with lies, and the imparted grace of God gives victory when he attacks the body. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, My grace is sufficient for thee. The third instance we found after Genesis 3 and Job 1 and 2 was 1 Chronicles 21, where Satan attacked David, not in the body or in the mind. He was not deceived, rather in his will. He got a hold of David's will and made David deliberately sin with his eyes wide open when he numbered the people. His weapon? Pride. David said, I will, I will, just like Satan had said back in Isaiah 14. His goal? To make us independent of God's will. Now, David knew he was doing wrong, but Satan said, go ahead, David, you're somebody important, you're big, you can get away with it. You know, God gives many favors to people, but there's one favor he will never give any of his children. He will never give us the privilege of sinning. He gave to Solomon the privilege of having wisdom and wealth. He gave to David the privilege of having conquest. But he can't give to any of his children the privilege of sinning. And yet Satan says, be independent. Now watch out for these three purposes of the devil. To make us ignorant of God's will, impatient with God's will, independent of God's will. What is the solution? What is the victory? The indwelling spirit of God. Philippians chapter 2 verses 12 and 13, for it is God that worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Now dear Christian friend, can you remember these three sources of victory? You and I do not have to be defeated by the devil. When he goes to work on the mind, trying to make us ignorant of God's will with his lies, we have the inspired word of God. When he goes to work on the body, trying to make us impatient with God's will through suffering, we have the imparted grace of God. We don't have to get impatient. When he goes to work on the will and tries to get us to deliberately disobey God, we have the indwelling spirit of God, who, by his power, can help us to will and to do of God's good pleasure. Now, these are the three devices Satan uses on earth, but did you know that he has a device he uses up in heaven? He uses these three tactics to try to get us to sin. And then if we do sin, he has a fourth approach that is really a blockbuster. I want you to turn in your Bible to Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah chapter 3. Now let me give you the background of this chapter. In the book of Zechariah, we have the prophet 
ministering to the Jewish remnant that returned to Jerusalem following the Babylonian captivity. Haggai and Zechariah were prophets who were trying to get the people to rebuild the temple and to serve the Lord. Now, the prophet had a vision in chapter 3, and he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. And unto him he said, Behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with change of raiment. And I said, Let them set a fair mitre upon his head. So they set a fair mitre upon his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord stood by. Now this Joshua here, of course, is not the Joshua of the book of Joshua. He'd been dead for many years. This is Joshua the high priest. There were two great leaders of the remnant that returned. There was Zerubbabel the governor, and there was Joshua the high priest. Now, the remnant of Jews was not dedicated. They were not sanctified, set apart. They were in sin. When you read Zechariah, when you read Malachi, and you read Haggai, you find out there was sin among God's people. What happens when there's sin among God's people? Well, the devil has a great time. Because here in Zechariah chapter 3, we see the fourth device of the devil, the fourth strategy of Satan, the one he uses not on earth in our body or our mind or our will, but the one he uses up in heaven. It's the device of accusation, not lies, the truth, not physical suffering, suffering in the heart, accusation. He is the accuser of the brethren. Now, you know this from the book of Revelation over in chapter 12 and in verse 10, we read this, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. Now, this is the devil's work up in heaven. He's not attacking the mind. He's not attacking the body or the will here on earth. He's up in heaven accusing God's sinning people before the Lord. Now, of course, this touches us in our hearts. Whenever a believer sins, his heart smites him, and Satan comes to accuse him in his heart. Not only does the devil accuse us up in heaven before God, but he comes down and bothers us with his demonic powers here on earth. And how many Christians who have sinned have gone into great depression and even physical sickness because of their sin? The devil tries to get us into sin by saying to us, you can get away with it. You're a Christian. You can sin and get away with it. Then after we do sin, he comes and says, too late, you're done for. God's through with you. Boy, you've sinned now. And then he turns his back on us in accusation. You see, he tries to get us ignorant of God's will. He tries to get us impatient with God's will and independent of God's will so that we'll sin. And then after we have sin, he brings that indictment by God's will, that sense of guilt. Now, there's an interesting parallel over in the book of Corinthians. 
In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul points out that a member of the Corinthian church was living in terrible sin. The indication is he was living immorally with his own stepmother, and the church had not disciplined this man. Now, let's not criticize the Corinthian church. How many churches do you know today that practice church discipline? Not very many. People don't want it because they don't want their own lives to be cleaned up. Well, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul said, You call a congregational meeting, and if this man does not repent, you dismiss him from the church. Well, they did. And after they had dismissed him from the church, this man did repent, and he did want to come back to serve the Lord and to be forgiven. And so Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, and in chapter 2, he says this, verse 4, For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote unto you with many tears. Not that ye should be grieved, but that ye might know the love which I have more abundantly unto you. But if any have caused grief, he hath not grieved me, but in part, that I may not overcharge you all. Sufficient to such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many, of the majority. Now, we can't believe that the whole church voted for this thing, but the majority did, because in the local church the majority is supposed to rule. So that contrarywise, 2 Corinthians 2, 7, ye ought rather to forgive him and comfort him, lest perhaps such an one should be swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. Down in verse 10, to whom ye forgive anything, I forgive also. Verse 11, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. Now here was this man who had sinned. He would not repent. They dismissed him from the church. He did repent. Paul said, you take him back and forgive him. If you don't, if you don't show your love to him and God's forgiveness to him, he's going to be covered with great sorrow and regret, and Satan's going to have an opportunity. You know, some Christians have completely ruined their testimonies because they did not believe God could forgive them. The devil doesn't want you to believe God can forgive you. I've had phone calls, anonymous phone calls from people. And they'll say, Brother Wiersbe, we listen to you on the radio, and I don't want you to know who I am, but I've committed a sin. And I don't feel I'm even worthy to go to church. What should I do? Well, the answer is you should come to the Lord Jesus Christ, your advocate, and confess that sin, and he will forgive you. Now, remember the three weapons I've already given to you? The inspired word of God, that answers the devil's lies. The imparted grace of God that meets suffering. The indwelling spirit of God that deals with pride. Our fourth weapon, the interceding son of God. Now this is beautifully pictured in Zechariah chapter 3. The interceding son of God. Joshua stood before God clothed in filthy garments. The high priest was never supposed to wear anything dirty. He's a picture of the sinning nation. He confessed his sin before God. Satan was standing there to accuse him. Satan was at his right hand to accuse him. But bless the Lord, Jesus Christ was at God's right hand to intercede for him. And so Jesus Christ said, you take off those filthy garments. You put a clean garment on him. You put that crown on his head. I have forgiven him all of his sins. And Satan, you be quiet. Now, I'm going to talk more about this in our next lesson, but let me close on this word of encouragement. If you have sinned, you can confess that sin to the Lord, and he will forgive you that sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This is Pastor Warren Wiersbe at the Calvary Baptist Church in Covington, Kentucky. The program is What's the Good Word? Thank you so much for listening.